Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Now, there are any number of things that I admire about Alison Moore. She's a singer, a songwriter, a producer a writer of prose. She has studied all of those disciplines exhaustingly. If I had to choose one specific area of expertise or one talent that she has that I admire maybe more than the rest of them, I would say her attention to detail. And probably it's that attention to detail that makes her so good at all these different things that she does. I tracked her down at a home in Nashville into which she had recently moved that she had just um, decorated. And that attention to detail was on display all over the house. Between the perfectly framed pieces of art that adorn every wall, there are arrows and they're all pointing up. And I, I asked her the significance of that, and she told me that it's good luck. Of course, of course it is. Visually, it's just so cool to see these arrows all perfectly lined up, kind of hiding between these brilliant and eclectic pieces of art all over the wall. Books everywhere. You can tell that she loves the written word, and studies it. And her own writing is about to become a featured part of her artistic life, as this fall she will be releasing her first memoir entitled Blood. Um, She's made a lot of music over the years, written a lot of songs, made a lot of records, produced a lot of records. Um, It was fascinating to talk to her about all of these things about the way she approaches her creativity and her artistic life. It was really fun to get to do it in the study of her home with one-eyed Willie in her lap. Uh, You'll hear about Willie pretty quickly during the course of the interview. Anyway, I feel really lucky to get to have these wheels off conversations. And I feel especially lucky that I got to talk to the guest on this episode of Wheels Off. Allison Moore. What creative project are you working on right now, and how does it inspire you? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I'll, I'll, set, I'll set it up for our listeners. Okay. Right now, we're sitting in your library of your home in Nashville. That sounds fancy. It is very, it is actually quite fancy. And um, 
You have your really sweet new little rescue dog in your lap, One-Eyed Willie. Yeah. Who's Jack Terrier, Jack Russell, Jack Russell and, Chihuahua. and Chihuahua. Yeah. There we go. So that's, that's quite a mix. That's a creative project right there. It is. And one I did not think through, I will say. <laughs> um, I, I got Willie on Friday and I forgot that. It's like, oh, it's a full grown dog. It'll be able to do all the stuff. Well, guess what? He doesn't really know how to do all the stuff. So right now we're working on walking on a leash and, uh, and going to the bathroom in the appropriate spot. Has he had accidents? So, yeah, a couple accidents. Um, but that's cool. He's very sweet. Yeah. He's very attached to me already, which makes the job a whole lot easier. I can tell he follows you. you. <laughs> yeah. So it's cool. So that's a project. Um, otherwise, I have a memoir coming out in October. It's my first book. It's called Blood. Worked on it for a long time. It's a memoir of my childhood, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some present day stuff in it, but not much. It's a memoir set in three parts. Um, and just tells things the way I remember them. And, uh, otherwise I'm working on an EP that's actually going to accompany the book. Oh, cool. So I'll be going to the studio in July to record that. So I have written some songs dealing with the subject matter of the book and I had some stuff lying around and I'm revisiting some things and, and um, just uh, trying to, to make a real creative companion piece to this book so that I can tell a little bit more of the story in, a, in the way that we do, which is through song. I mean, I go back and forth, like, what did I need to really tell this story? And I feel like um, I needed prose in a big way. I could never really draw the full experience in song. Yeah. I wish I could have. But I'm not John Prine. <laughs> um, so I, I needed the long form to get justice done to what really went down. But I, I love to draw the emotion out in a musical way as well. I mean, blood seems like it's uh, life, life's work in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a massive thing. Is it weird for you now that it's done and that it's coming out and that it's... I mean, it's put to bed, like you've written it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you must be so proud, is it? Well, you know, it's funny, because I'm a person who, well, not to sound egg-headed, or, um, even though I am a giant nerd, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this to sound like, oh, I'm too good to look back, or I don't appreciate anything I've done, or any of that, but I tend to be a person who moves on very quickly in, in a lot of areas of life. And I think that has to do with my childhood in a very direct way because, um, and what I'm getting to is when I, when I finish something, I usually, I feel like I'm done and I move on and I'm on the next thing. Um, I think because I grew up the way I did and have and adopted sort of a peripatetic view of life. Um, my parents were not settled, and I spent a lot of time feeling like I was pulled from pillar to post, and I became very comfortable with that. Um, we were talking about clutter today. I think that's yeah. that's one of the reasons why I don't really hang on to things. It's, I never know when I'm going to need to let go. So in my work... I, 
I tend to be that way. I will work really hard on a thing, make it. And once it's made, I'm done and I'm, I'm, I'm gone, gone. So with this, you know, I finished this memoir in June of 2017. And now it's June of 2019. Yeah. And I'm starting to get all these blurbs back and, and press is starting to come out. And it's, it's like emotional whiplash. I'm going, what? What are they talking about? Like, oh, I got to look back. Oh, like, yeah, I did that. And I'll pick the thing up. And I'll read, I'll just turn to page one and I'll go, who did that? <laughs> it's, it's like I almost can't. And I spent five years working on this book and I did several rewrites. I went and got an MFA to learn how to even <laughs> like know what I was doing in the craft. And, um, but I still will, will pick the book up, turn to a page and go, I can't imagine writing this now. And which I think is is really interesting. It's a it's an interesting way to view humanity, because we are always growing and we're always learning and we're always changing. And when you make art, when you make that kind of work, they're like markers of time. They are for me. Like when I look back to my first record twenty years ago, it's like I don't even recognize that girl. You know, although I do, same girl, different world. So I think when I even just, you know, finished this book two years ago, I'm like, I don't know that I could do that now because you get so into a thing and then you get out of the thing and you go into the next thing. So what about, what about you? Do you experience that? I, I think I'm listening to you and I think about um, you and I both make rec- records and there's the weird thing that's it's less of a thing now. But you would finish the record, and there was always the four, at least four-month gap, which was necessitated by the long lead time for magazines originally, which kids' magazines are a thing that has a binding and paper and big pictures. And no, there are still <laughs> magazines, right? So A few. Yeah. So, but that four-month gap for me was always really fraught, right? Because it's the question of, what are they going to think about this thing I made? And like, I don't know if that ever bothered you, but you describing a two-year gap, that's terrifying sounding. But it sounds like you didn't really let it get to you. You sort of just kept on. Well, you know, and in, in, in somebody told me this early on. It's like, you think, you know, there's a long gap between finishing a record and putting it out. The book world is slow. It's like, you know, it's freaking forever. And so I was aware of that. <clears throat> And, you know, when I actually, I did not work with an editor while I was writing this book. I did not want to. I didn't go, I didn't do a proposal and then go shop it and get a book deal before I finished it. I did not want to do that. I didn't want anybody involved. I felt like I had enough voices to deal with without someone yapping at me about this, that, and the other. So I did, however, have an agent who read some early pages and who sort of guided me. And I had an invaluable uh, professor in graduate school who ended up being my thesis advisor. And I used this book as my thesis. And so there were some parts of this that were workshopped and he really helped me find the structure. So I had enough of those early readers that I felt like, you know, if I'm getting off here, if this just absolutely sucks, somebody's going to tell me. So I didn't do that. So when I when I finished the book, when I was like, okay, I'm done. This is the best I can do. I can't do this anymore. I'm calling it. 
Um, from that point on, you know, there was a, a period where I was working with my agent on which parts of the book to show potential editors. So we were working on what she then made into a proposal. And then the following March, I had some offers. I picked a, an editor and a publisher and then, you know, signed the deal. And then by June, so a year ago, we're into edits. So then we get into that process. And, you know, this book was not heavily edited by the time I turned it in. It was pretty tight. Yeah. So um, just, you know, you go through, cut this, cut that. And let's rearrange this, let's rearrange that. And then you go through the legal process. Uh, when you're writing nonfiction, you know, the attorney comes in and says, well, do you really want to say that about that person? You might want to think about this. Or is this actually true? Or, you know, which is helpful yeah. because you go, well, you saw the actually, trouble Moby got into. I should consider, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I should consider, do I want to say that about mm. that person? And, you know, so anyway, there's that. And then the copy editing and the proofreading. And the, it takes a long time. Yeah. And so these pages come back at you. You've been through this process. They bit. come back at you and you're like, Ugh. and it, it takes you out. I'm at, To put it in context, I'm working on my second book. Um, so I'm in that. Yeah. And whenever I get something that I have to review, I'm like, whoa, this is not what I'm working on. Okay, well, let me go back to this other thing. And oh, yeah, okay. And I have to kind of put that hat on that I haven't worn in a while. You're juggling a lot. Yeah. I mean, with the promotion of blood, which is got to be, I mean, that, whatever, you, 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 you've done press for a long time. You know what it entails, but this is kind of a different animal because it's so personal Mm-hmm. And it's a different medium. And then you're making, like you said, a companion record. You're writing another book. How cool is this? You're it's like great. a renaissance person. Well, I don't know if I would call myself that. I would call myself a, just a person who's trying to make stuff out of her experience. Because I feel like that's my job. Exactly. Well, I, I wonder, one of, the <laughs> things, one of the things I wonder about a lot is how much does the work you do in one field translate like, how much do the credits cross over? Like, all the years you've written songs. And, you know, your songs are, your songs feel, sorry, as a listener, I should say, your songs feel very, they feel personal, they feel intimate, they feel really truthful. But it's not like writing a memoir, you know. So, but do you feel like that some of those 10,000 hours crossed over for you? Mm. Making I art? like that you mentioned the 10,000 hours. I think I did my 10,000 hours in the car with my mother and sister as a child singing songs. I, I have actually talked about that. Like we, I, I grew up, this is not answering your question, <laughs> but quickly, like I grew up in the country, like the sticks of South Alabama. And my early musical education came from um, being in the car with my mama and my sister when uh, on mornings and afternoons when she would drive us 30 miles a day to go to school and she would go to work. We'd drive that far in the mornings and we would drive that far home. And for a while we didn't have a work in radio in the car, so we would sing. And that's where my sister and I learned to sing was during those hours. Wow. So anyway, um, I think how songwriting informed my writing prose is in a couple different ways. Um, first of all, an ear for language is just invaluable. 
being able to hear when something rings and when something doesn't. Because, you know, as a songwriter, when a line has musicality in the words and rhythm is so important. When it sings. Yes. And what you're doing with your sentences, what you're doing with sentence length, like da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Are, but you can only do that a couple times. You don't want to do that over and over. And or you know, there's so many things about rhythm and about what the ear does. Alliteration, what the ear hooks onto in a sentence, what the peak words are that you hook onto as a listener. And we don't even really know as human beings that we do this. But if you break a great song down, you can see or hear what the human ear wants to attach to. So taking that into prose was invaluable. And I felt like I was far ahead of the curve as someone who's writing a book because I had the background as a songwriter. Now, that does not mean at all that I knew how to write a book, and I didn't at all, and I don't even know that I do now. But I paid attention to what sounded good. I always read things back to myself. Always, always I read it aloud. Always. Because if you can't do that, if it's not compelling like that, it's not going to be compelling when someone else is reading it. Yeah. So that that for me, that it's a performance. There has to be a, a, a performance quality to everything. And actually, I flipped that. I remember um, when I first started writing the pages that became this memoir, I was working on songs for what was my last solo record, which came out almost five years ago, I'm sorry to say. But there's a song on it called Thunderstorm Hurricane, which is consists of exactly 13 lines. I was obsessed at the time. Now, this is cross-pollinization uh, stuff, but I was obsessed at the time with Picasso's line drawings and thought, wow, the economy in those line drawings. I wonder, you know, he's just, he's using maybe six lines and making a perfect representation of something that everyone on the planet recognizes. He does not need color. He does not need a brush. He does not need anything other than six strokes. And we know what that is. I was fascinated by that concept. And I, and I was also reading at the time a lot of Joan Didion, who's the queen of economy. And, uh, and absolute ice, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wrote this song called Thunderstorm Hurricane, which consists of 13 lines. And I, that was absolutely by design. So I'm bringing it in the other way too. Like how, how can I take the literary rules or even just the artistic rules and apply them to songwriting? I love that. Well, it's just, you know, we have to do that as we get older. Like yeah. when we're green and like bright and bushy tailed and we're like, oh, I just got some songs and I just want to do these songs. I want to sound like Hank Williams or Jimmy Rogers or what the hell ever, or, you know, the Stones <laughs> and make four or five records. And you go, yeah, well... You almost kind of start to see the closed Let's loop a little it. bit. Like, oh, God, I'm doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mix it up. It's funny. So I hear you um, describing 
what amounts to like a life of performance as you're driving along entertaining or um you know singing along with your mom and your sister and um and then you you know reading your book aloud as you're working on it because it's performance it's all this thing was was there a moment when you were a kid when you knew like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna make art for a living i will make music or books did you have an epiphany moment as a child no um i grew up in a musical household we always had instruments we always had records my parents luckily had pretty good taste um and they were players they sang they did gigs they dragged us into bars they like but also my mother's family always had what we called fiddlins they had you know uh, my mama's mama was one of 14 children and I swear every one of them sang wow. and they knew how to sing parts and you know it just was the way I grew up was singing grabbing the guitar sitting down singing whatever song and everybody chiming in on the part and it was just a beautiful thing at the time I did not know that was special I did not know that everybody didn't do that. When I was 13, my daddy decided that we were going to go to Nashville and make a record. And we basically loaded up in a car and we went to Nashville and we made a custom record. You know, we paid $1,500 or whatever. We got two sessions at the studio and we got a box of 45s. And that was in 1985. And, but, you know, I'm a teenager and I didn't think there was really anything great about that. I was like, oh yeah, we did this thing because we were just for whatever reason, show people who did not, we didn't make a living that way. But from the time I was four years old, I was performing at the Fiddler's Convention at the schoolhouse and winning $25 for the vocal group category with wow. my sisters, the most money I'd ever seen, <laughs> and uh, which I probably you know, had to share with my mama for gas money to make those trips in the <laughs> car. Um, it, it, uh, I had never had that moment of, this is what I'm going to do. In fact, I remember being 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, getting pretty close to the time that my parents died, um, when my sister, who was much more obsessed with being a star than I was, I was always drawn to the craft of things and, and trying to figure out how things worked and, and um, you know, hearing little parts on records and... and uh, Deconstructing. My ear was just peaked all yeah. the time. And I would learn parts and I took piano lessons and, you know, it's just, but I was never in the mirror with a hairbrush. Yeah. Never. Where she, I would sneak up on her and just laugh, you know, my ass off of her because she wanted to be famous. And I never really got that part of it. I, it was a natural thing for me to just say, you know, you just make arts what you do. I didn't know that I would end up doing it making art for a living until I got out of college. I was 20 when I got out of college, but, and then I moved to Nashville because my sister was in Nashville and I needed somewhere to go. And I began singing with her. And then I, once I got a taste of the road, 
and what that was like and what singing in front of big crowds was like. I was like, yeah, I probably want to do this. This is, <laughs> this is, this is hot. This is good. Um, but still, I always took more of a, um, I don't know, right brain approach to it. Well, we were over over dinner earlier, um, you and I and Hayes, Carl, your now, congratulations, now husband. I know, isn't that crazy? It's so cool. <laughs> um, we were discussing uh, heists, and um, and I, I we were talking about uh, professional thieves being workmanlike. And I, it's funny, I'm listening to you now and the way you approach all this stuff, and I admire so much how workmanlike your approach is to this. I just think it's so cool because it really honors um, that this is work, that this is a craft. We are building something, even mm. if it's uh, built of ideas. You know, I took some classes at Parsons School of Design years ago. I love clothes. I've always admired clothes. I thought for a while that that might be my career path, like I would get into... Um, designing or, or doing something and it ended up not being my calling and I'm, a, I'm appreciator of fashion and what I know about it because I took those classes and I learned how to construct a garment is it is architecture and I've always thought so if you look at the seams on the jacket or the inner workings of it the stay stitching the the binding the French seams the whatever it is it is architecture that is something that is built and I think that the best songs and the best literature, we have to have the lightning bolt. Absolutely. Have to have it. Because if you don't have that, it's dead in the water. And you can be the best craftsman there is, but if you don't have something to say, you don't have shit. <laughs> yeah. But you got to have a bottle. And what you have to do is work on making that bottle so that when you do get the lightning, you got somewhere to put it. Because otherwise, it's just running all over the page. And you don't know what to do. And it's like jello and your hands running through your fingers. And I spent a lot of years like that. Early on as a songwriter, I had way more inspiration than I had craft. And it was frustrating for me. Because I always knew that I probably had the ability to do something that was good. But I didn't have the tools. And if you don't have... I mean, there are some people walking around on the planet who are just born with those things. And I'm not one of those. I am not. I had to be taught. I had to sit at the feet of the masters. And that's one great thing about Nashville is I was given an opportunity as a young girl. I was like, you know, 22, three-year-old. I got a publishing deal and it was a gift because they put me in rooms with people who knew what they were doing. Yeah. What I had was raw. Very raw. And it still is that way in many ways but I learned so much from those people who who taught me and I've always been a person who's curious about how to do something and I am a terrible student as well I usually have to like read about how to do something rather than hear it (laughs) but but where that's different is with words I can absorb if somebody's telling me actually this is how the puzzle works because there is a way that it works and there's a way that it doesn't work and if you if you don't know what you're doing you can get lucky but you won't get lucky twice <laughs> wow i can't wait for the book you write about creativity <laughs> just in the last five minutes there's been 
I, I can take any number of those quotes and put them on the wall of my office and mm. get inspired by them. But I, you've alluded a little bit to, um, in inner turmoil, like that's those the feelings of um, self doubt and the sort of the obstacles that we generate um, as artists that kind of get in the way of us making the things that maybe we're meant to make. Um, how much have you dealt with that, and and how have you dealt with that? Mm. I doubt myself every day, every day, and and working on this memoir that I'm looking at right here on this table. On my last rewrite, there was a six month period where I got up at five o'clock in the morning every morning. Because it was the only time I had that was unbroken. I got about an hour and a half or two hours before my son got up where I could concentrate. And I had a ritual. would drag myself out of bed. In, you know, living in my New York City apartment, it was cold. I was, like, wrapped up in a sweater. I would go to the kitchen and boil my water for my French press. And I'm old school, so I boil it on the stove and just went through this whole thing and it was I had to fire it up I had to fire up all those memories and get myself in that place and I even write there's a couple pages in the book about me saying you know today I just don't know why I'm doing this I don't know why and I figured out that day and then it left me like I'm doing this because I need to tell the story. I'm doing this because I'm simultaneously keeping them alive and killing them at the same time. And that's just what I need to do. That's my journey. That's what I'm trying to learn. That's what I'm dealing with this time. I don't, I I struggle with self-doubt daily. And I think it's because we were just talking about, like, I am not a a great craftsman. I am not someone who really can sit here and tell you how this works or how to write a song or how to write a beautiful paragraph or even a sentence, any of those things. I think that I'm here to tell stories and I've lived a fantastic life in some ways. And I use that word in, in to, to say that I've lived an extraordinary life. I've had extraordinary experiences. I've had major shit happen to me. And um, (laughs) I think that's because I have been given by God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, tools with which to deal with those things, process them, and then give them back to the world. Because that's the only way I can be of help. So in a way, for you, creating art is service. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. What else am I here for? Isn't that the meaning of life, right? Service? Well, yeah. I had to do something with all this mess. It's funny. I was I was listening to you describe singing uh, to your mom and sister, and, and I was remembering my own sort of constant flailing attempts to entertain loved ones. And I, I wonder about the idea of other people and, like, how much... Because it's something like 
when I have these conversations with people so much of the time, it's about why we make art and what it does for us and what it means to us and how we process our stuff through it. But a lot of times, I know for me, it had a lot to do with trying desperately to please other people all the time. And so to hear you say it in such a way that it doesn't sound like a negative thing, which is how I've always sort of couched it, like it's a loving thing you're giving to the universe. You're not compulsively trying to make someone else happy. Mm-mm, no, I'm not trying to. And now I do that in my daily life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a, I've had to unlearn how to please. Um, in art, the first thing I'm trying to do is is just deal with my mess. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to make sense of my mess. And there's a lot of it. And that's not to say that it's spectacular. It's not that different from anyone else's when it gets down to it. Um, But I do feel like there is um, quite possibly a collective trauma in our world. And I think, you know, we're seeing all this, this trend toward wellness and self-care and all the sort of um, uh, all that language that's going around and and it's dangerous because it goes you know there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of falseness to that and a lot of crap out there Um, what I think we're going to uh, fall back to in a way is a realization that we have to, as a human race, heal ourselves of the collective trauma that we are drowning in at this point. We have so many events in our history. And I say that because I know individually for myself that I deal with my the trauma that came before me. When I'm, when I'm talking about um, my father's trauma or my mother's trauma and what that added up to, how they ended up dead at 41 and 44. And, and they ended up there simply because they did not have the tools with which to deal with, with their relationship, their relationship to each other, who they were in the world. They, didn't, they were not given the tools by their parents who were dealing with their trauma who did not know how to raise them to be strong people who could withstand an addictive situation or say no to it or whatever. So all these things get passed down to us. And I think what we're dealing with now as a culture is this realization that we don't want to live like this. If we continue to carry all of this crap, and we put crap on top of crap on top of crap on top of crap, and it's all this baggage, we're ruining our children, basically. Yeah. Because we do pass on our stuff to our children. And it's our responsibility as human beings to heal that. So what that has to do with with making art is, art is a mirror. That's all it is. It's, It's the artist is given a big job in a spiritual sense. We are the ones who say, I'm going to deduct all of this information and I'm going to put it down in a way that the rest of you can see. And then I'm going to give it to you. 
and it's going to be relatable. And then it's going to do something for you. And then it will change you. I mean, how many times have you written like a drinking song and somebody come up to you and said, that meant so much to me? Isn't that weird? Never. (laughs) (laughs) But you write something personal, dealing with something that meant something to you that affected your life. And that's the one you're going to get letters about. That's Mm -hmm. the one you're going to get the person after the show saying, that got me through a hard time. And that's the job of the artist. It's not to be perfect. It's just to take all this experience, boil it down, spit it back out, and then it's a relief to everybody. Me, you, the whole thing. Break the cycle. Yeah. I love that. At some point, you got to take it to a higher place. Because at the age of, I'll be 47 on Friday. Happy birthday. Thank you. I can't be... Just running up and down the roads for no reason. I can't sit and suck on my pencil for no reason. It's hard. I have a child. I have a husband. I have a family. I have friends. I have a new dog. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I got to get more out of it. And so there's a lot of self-doubt, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. I would doubt myself no matter what I did. I think maybe it's constructive, though. I mean, there's there's an element of fuel. I don't know. You got to love yourself too. Sometimes it's all that keeps you going. (laughs) What would you do if you woke up and felt great about everything you'd done? I think waking up and feeling great is wonderful. Yeah, I am not at all saying that that's not great. Um, but I need I need to keep going. I want to do better. I want the work to to be better. I want to be better as a person. I want to, you know, just, I want to, I want to keep growing. So, so all the ten, tens of thousands of hours you've stacked up now, if you were to look back on all of that and you were to meet a 21 year old version of yourself working today though, what would you tell her? You're going to do all right. Oh, that's... Don't worry so I love that. Is there any secret you'd need her to know about? Secret. Um, like just some... You know more than you think you do. Oh, yeah. I think you're fantastic. I really <laughs> appreciate this. I feel like this is so useful. And, and I... I can't wait for you to write a book about creativity because I really feel like you've distilled a lot of great ideas. You've studied so hard, despite your own proclamation that you're a terrible student. I don't believe that for a second. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really impressed and proud of you and for you. I think that your books, your music, your rescuing Sweet One-Eyed Willie and Hayes, I think you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for being my guest. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or 
anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.